And I'm so excited to be part of this series. It sounds like such a great series you're going through of a better story of God's plan for sex and human flourishing. I love the idea of a better story because I truly believe that that is the case, that God has a better story for us when it comes to topics like sex and human flourishing. I believe that that's been my own experience. As someone's had to really wrestle with big questions around this. As a guy who is same-sex attracted or gay, I've had to wrestle with, what is God saying? Is it good? As a guy who's had questions around my gender, I've had to wrestle with this. And I truly believe that God has a better story. So I love getting to help people to see some of that better story. And that's what we're going to do today, looking at the topic of gender. Gender, the better story. And we're going to do that by tackling a question. What has become a very big, a very controversial question, we're going to ask the question, what does it mean to be a man or a woman? What does it mean to be a man or a woman? That's become a really contested, controversial question in our culture. A number of senior politicians have struggled to define the word women in recent months over the last year or so. You might remember just over a year ago, Keir Starmer got in a bit of a tangle when he was saying in an interview that it's not right to say that only women have a cervix. He said it's not right to link womanhood to something bodily, to a body type. More recently, in fact, right at the very moment, the Scottish government are being taken to court for their attempt to redefine the definition of women we seem to be really unclear, actually, in our culture. What does it mean to be a man or woman? What is a man or woman? It's a big question in the culture and the kind of world we're living in, but actually it's also a big question a lot closer home for many of us. It's a real-life question, a personal question for many of us, and that can happen in different ways. It can be a big real-life personal question because some people experience a significant disconnect. A disconnect between what their body seems to say about who they are, what people have assumed, how people seem to interact with them, but then how they feel themselves to be. They might identify as transgender. They might experience gender dysphoria, a level of distress because of this kind of disconnect they're experiencing between what their body seems to say about who they are and who they feel themselves to be. For some people, this question is really real and personal because there's significant disconnect. For other people, it's not maybe quite as severe as disconnect, but there can be an experience of discomfort around our identity as a man or woman. A sense of not quite fitting in as a man or woman, not quite making the cut, not being a real man or woman. Just this sense of just slight discomfort with who we are. And then also, it's real life and personal for any of us who want to follow Jesus, because there are discipleship questions. The question, well, how do I faithfully follow Jesus as a man or a woman? How do I honor Jesus as a man or a woman? Disconnect, discomfort, discipleship. There are lots of ways that for all of us, there'll be real life personal impacts of the question, what's it mean to be a man or a woman? And my observation is that many of us are impacted in this way. The, the number of people who experience that significant disconnect is relatively small, or that doesn't play the, downplay the significance of that experience. My experience, though, of talking about this quite a lot now in Christian context is many of us have that sense of discomfort, of not quite kind of making the cut. And for me in my life, this has been a big question. What does it mean to be a man and woman? And what about my own gender identity? There was a time in my childhood when I really came to believe that I was a girl trapped in a boy's body. I remember it very vividly. I remember the vivid fear of the fear that I would get pregnant and I would get found out, before I knew how these kind of things worked. But I became convinced I was a girl trapped in a boy's body and therefore I'd have to keep this a secret and never tell anyone, hide this from everyone. That feeling naturally went away as I went through adolescence. That's actually not an uncommon experience. 
But I was left with this lingering sense of not making the cut as a real man, not quite really being a real man. I noticed, I look back now, and I would say things to female friends like, well, he would say that because he's a man, which is the men are over there, and I'm not in that group, I'm over here. Things like stag do's, single-sex environments, were literally my worst nightmare. I felt so uncomfortable and so out of place in them. And there were just so many ways in which I was really self-conscious. I just thought, I'm not like other men. I don't fit in as a man. But actually, what I found is there's wonderful freedom in biblical teaching on what it means to be a man or woman. You see, so many people assume that when the Bible comes to men and women, it's kind of oppressive and restrictive and harmful. I found, no, no, when we understand what the Scriptures say about what it means to be a man or a woman, there's wonderful freedom for us to receive. And my hope today is I can convey some of the goodness of what Scripture says, the freedom that is offered to us, the better story that is offered to us. So let's dive in and try and tackle this big question, what does it mean to be a man or woman? If we're coming to the Bible, to the Christian scriptures to answer that question, the place we want to start is right at the start, the very first chapter of the Bible, the book of Genesis, where we have this kind of widescreen, big picture story of creation. And on the sixth day of creation, God creates the pinnacle of what he's making. He creates us. He creates humanity. And he talks about who we are. Let's read what it said in Genesis 1, starting at verse 26. Then God said... Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The key verse we're going to hone in on is verse 27, that verse in the middle, where two key truths about us as humans are stated and emerge. Two key truths placed in parallel. The truth that we're created in God's image, and the truth that we're created male and female. First of all, we're created in God's image. That is something that is special and unique about us as humans. We're the only part of God's creation about which it is said we are created in God's image. And as you saw there, it's pretty much the first thing we're told about humans in the Scriptures, which gives it significance, gives it huge importance. God wants us to get every single living human being is created in the image of God. Importantly, that's said before anything is said about being male or female. This is of supreme importance before that. And there's lots of debate, actually, about what does the image of God mean. But I think when you look at how it's used in the rest of Scripture, it seems to speak of a family resemblance between us and God. A few chapters later, we hear about Adam and his son, Seth. And Seth is said to be born uh, in the image and the likeness of Adam. Same language. And we get the concept, don't we? Like father, like son, this kind of sense of family resemblance. Well, it seems to be like God, like us. There's an unspecified family resemblance between us and God. And the way that then gets applied in Scripture is that us being like God in some way, us bearing the image of God, means that we have inherent worth and inherent dignity. It means that every single living human being, from conception to natural birth, has inherent value. The life has inherent value and is worthy of preservation and of protection. It's the reason for uh, we should fight for equality and for uh, the end of discrimination. It's the reason that all people are worthy of honor, respect, and love. 
And it's so important for us to notice that's the first thing we're told about humans. Before any differences, we are united in the fact we are created in God's image. And so when it comes to thinking about men and women, the first thing we can state is actually Scripture is explicitly clear that men and women are equal in worth and in value. And interestingly, as a side note, that's something we as a culture, as a whole, believe and are seeking to implement. And we kind of think that's a self-evident truth, but it's actually not. That's rooted in Christian, Judeo-Christian thinking. We're all now aware, or many of us are aware now, of the words of the um, Declaration of Independence from the States. Most of us, though, are honest, from the musical Hamilton rather than actually from history study, which talks about it being self-evident that all men are created equal. But you don't have to look very far to see it doesn't seem that that has been self-evident to humans. Look through history. It has not been self-evident that all people are created equal. We have not lived that out. The reason we as a society believe that is because we've rightly understood that from the Christian scriptures. It's because of the image of God. And notice as well, the image of God is a given identity. This is true of us because of how God's made us and what God says over us. It's a thing he's given to us. You don't act in a certain way to become in the image of God. You don't have to feel a certain thing to be in the image of God. You are in the image of God because of how he's made you, because of what he says. It's a given identity. So we're told in this verse we're created in the image of God, and then in parallel is placed we are created male and female. That also, therefore, is an important thing. It's one of the first things we're told. It's interesting that in this chapter, this is only said of humans, even though it's also true of many other species, and the writer knows that. A few chapters later, Genesis 5 or 6, when he's talking about the flood and the Noah story, he'll talk about male and female animals. He knows animals are created male and female, but doesn't feel it significant in Genesis 1. He does feel it significant to say that we, humans, are created male and female. And this is placed in parallel with the image of God, which is telling us something important. It's telling us that this is a given identity. To be male or female is something given to us by God in how he created us and what he says over us. You don't act a certain way to become male or female. You don't feel a certain thing to become male or female. You are male or female based on how God has created us, based on what he says over us. We're a man or woman because of what God says over us, the identity he's given to us. And so the question becomes, well, in what way, how does God give to us and speak over us this identity of being a man or a woman? Well, helpfully, I think at this point, both the teaching of the Bible and actually the logic of science kind of come together and work together. Both seem to point to our bodies and specifically our reproductive systems, the things which mark us out as male or female, the ways God has created us, which then communicate to us this given identity that God has given us. Notice that in those verses we read in Genesis 1. Did you spot something interesting? In verse 26, you have this commission for humanity to have dominion over all the fish and the birds and all the animals. And then verse 27, you get the image of God and you get male and female. And verse 28, you get repeated, the thing about having dominion over all the other creatures and such like. But also added in before that, you get the commission to fill the earth, to multiply, to procreate, to have sex and have babies. That's kind of added in. It wasn't there in verse 26. It is there in verse 28. What's changed in between? Why is that put in? Well, we've learned that we're male and female. You see, the mention of male and female in Genesis 1.27 flows immediately into the command to reproduce, to procreate, to have babies, because it's being male or female, which is about the body parts that help us make babies. This is the logic. Being male or female means there can be babies, because that's about our reproductive systems. 
Scripture is indicating to us the way we receive from God our identity as a man or a woman is in the body he's given us and how it's structured to play a role in reproduction. And that is also the way that science views this. The only truly binary way, the kind of either-or way of um, identifying and classifying uh, biological sexes is in reproductive systems. Across species, biologists use this. It actually gets whittled right down to sex cells, to gametes, uh, sperm and eggs in humans. They're the things which are used to determine across the species, male and females. And it's a simple fact of science that people recognize that's the only form of biology we can use to identify males and females. And so it's interesting and important to see that Bible and science here are agreeing with each other. They are matching up with each other. The way our body is structured to play one of two roles in reproduction is the way that we identify it as male or females. In the Christian vision, it's the way God gives us this identity. I know that, though, raises some questions, some what I like to call, but what about? So you might be thinking, but what about? And they're really important to think about. Just briefly to touch on, well, but what about those of us, like myself, who don't have children? Or what about those of us who are infertile and find we're unable to uh, naturally father a father or mother a child biologically? Does this bring into question our identity as a man or woman, actually, if it's all about our reproductive systems? And I would say it's really important we say, no, it doesn't bring that into question. This isn't about whether our reproductive system gets used to uh, have children or whether it's able, actually, to play that role. It's about the structuring of it. The, in a sense, the way our bodies point, the role that they are pointing towards in that two-part uh, production of, or two-part process of producing children. For those of us who don't have children or those of us who wrestle with the great pain sometimes of infertility, that doesn't bring into question our identity as a man or woman. But another but what about you might be thinking of is you might be aware of the reality of what are sometimes called intersex conditions or differences of sexual development. These uh, are terms used for a wide range of um, situations in which someone's uh, physical body and their anatomy doesn't actually match up in full with the expected pattern for either male or female. And there can be greater or lesser uh, variations upon and differences from what is expected. Does that disprove the idea that our bodies speak to us about who we are as a man or woman, that God has created these two types of human as men or women? I don't think it does. Uh, one important reason why it doesn't is because there's no third body type that can play a role in reproduction. Reproduction takes two, it takes two body types. There's no third type that can play a role. There is no third sex. It's not man, woman, and something else. That isn't how things work. In most intersex conditions, someone is very clearly either male or female. There's just minor variations in their physical body. In some very rare cases, there generally are uh, anatomical characteristics of both men and women, males and females. And I think it's best for us to understand that is in very rare cases, you get a genuine blend of the two together. But it doesn't undermine the idea that God's created two types based on the structures of reproduction. And that identity is given to us in our bodies. It's a gift to us. And so both the Bible and science work together to help us understand that that is what it means to be a man or a woman. But of course, we also know that we live in a culture where at least one viewpoint in our culture contrasts incredibly sharply with that kind of picture I've just presented. We live in a culture where actually in lots of ways the body is pretty insignificant and is undervalued so often. I think you've already talked about the body in this series. And actually in our culture, the body isn't really important. What matters is what you feel inside. 
Our culture has elevated what we feel, what we experience inside as the most important thing about us, including when it comes to our experience of being a man or woman. And so we're told, actually, what really determines whether you're a man or woman is how you feel inside. If you feel like a woman, you are a woman. If you feel like a man, you are a man. It doesn't matter what your body says. It doesn't matter what people say, any community, any tradition. What matters is what you know, what you feel inside. So what some people do is they separate out the reality of biological sex, i.e. what our bodies say, and kind of gender identity, how we feel ourselves, or who we are even, they would say, inside. And some then go as far as to separate the language. Some people say, no, male and female and man and woman are two different things. Male and female is about your body. Man and woman is about who you really are inside. And so many people in our culture believe, yeah, you can have a male body, but you can still be a woman. And you know if you're a woman if you feel like a woman. Or a female body, you can be a man because you feel like a man. The body you're born with doesn't dictate who you are, this view says. But I think even without the contradiction that has with the Bible's teaching, there are just some fairly simple, straightforward problems with that. One question is just, what does it mean to feel like a man or to feel like a woman? How would anyone know? Could you articulate to someone what it means to feel like a human? Be very hard. We know nothing different. How can you know? It's, no, it doesn't really make sense. And actually, the whole idea of, say, a woman being someone who feels like a woman or a man being someone who feels like a man, those statements are literally meaningless because you can't define a word by using a word. If you define a word by using a word, it becomes circular. So let's take a woman as someone who feels like a woman. What's that saying as a woman is someone who feels like someone, is someone who feels like someone, is someone who feels like something. You get stuck in an infinite loop. It's literally a word statement which is contentless. It's meaningless. It doesn't answer for us the question, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? We need a better way of answering that. Our bodies are the clear-cut, solid, given way to us of determining we are a man or a woman. The popular of our culture just doesn't make sense, doesn't work. And importantly, for us as Christians, Jesus, I think, agrees with this. Jesus indicates this. He never actually explicitly talked about the question, what does it mean to be a man or a woman? That wasn't a question being asked in his culture. It would have been very peculiar for him to suddenly start talking about that. But he does show us a thing that he backs up and he agrees with what Genesis says and what we've seen. This is really interesting scene, really important scene, where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, some of the religious leaders of the day. We see this in Matthew 19 in Mark 10. They come to test him. They want to catch him out. They don't like him, want to get him in trouble. They pick divorce as their topic because they know it's a controversial topic in his time. They can catch him out on that. And they ask him about a whole load of stuff from Old Testament law. But he jumps all the way back over the Old Testament law to Genesis 1 and 2, the creation stories, to the, the plan, how things are meant to be. And he quotes from both Genesis 1, the verse we read, Genesis 1.27, and he also quotes from Genesis 2, this key statement there about marriage. And what he does in doing that is he shows us that he thinks that males and females are the same thing as men and women, that your body tells you who you are. Let me just read you a few verses in Matthew 19 and have your ears open for the way Jesus is using the language male and female and the language man and woman. Matthew 19, verse 4. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So what Jesus does, he quotes Genesis 1.27, male and female, 
and links it with Genesis 2.25. A man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. The Greek word is the same word for women. Jesus sees males and females as the same as men and women. He doesn't see any separation. He sees our body, as indicated by Genesis 1, as telling us who we are. It's not how we feel. It's not how we act. It's the identity God gives us in our body. What does it mean to be a man or woman? Jesus agrees with Genesis, agrees with science. It's to receive a body from God that is structured to play one of two roles in reproduction. That's one question, and the controversial question in our culture. But if we're really honest, I think there's a different question is the one we actually particularly care about. The question we really care about isn't just what does it mean to be a man or woman, but what does it mean to live as a man or woman? What's the, like, the outworking of this? How do we put this into practice? What demands does this make on us? That's maybe the thing we really care about. What do the scriptures say there? Well, Genesis 1 doesn't have a lot to tell us. Genesis 1 tells us we are creating male and female. It doesn't expound it much. So we've got to go further into the scriptures to find some answers here. And I've wrestled with this and looked through the scriptures. And as far as I can see, there are only two clear parameters laid down in scriptures of the different ways that we as men and women are to live, the ways we live out the fact we're a man or a woman. I can't unpack them in detail, but let me quickly run you through them. I think scripture does say that our identity given to us by God as a man or a woman should be observable in our external appearance, that people should be better telling, in a sense, whether we're a man or a woman. And most importantly, we shouldn't seek to cause people to think the opposite, think that we are, or think differently to the body God has given us. Scripture speaks negatively of cross-dressing, I think that's why. Deuteronomy 22.5 would be a key verse here. 1 Corinthians 11, that, that, that complex passage about head coverings, but the thing pretty much every scholar agrees on is Paul is saying the distinction between the sexes and maintaining that is really important. Scripture seems to say we're meant to present to the world in line with the ways the world around us will understand whether we're a man or a woman. And of course, let's be honest, God's given us a head start on that, right? Breasts and beards, things like that, secondary sex characteristics, they give us a head start on presenting to the world whether we are a man or woman. Side note, I'll just clarify here, I don't think that means you have to grow a beard as a man. That's not what God is saying. But the fact is our bodies are different in visible ways. And that's part of a starting of this, presenting this to the world around us. And then we continue that in how we dress, style of hair or whatever, in ways that our culture will interpret rightly. There's an external appearance kind of uh, outworking of living as a man or woman. Scripture also teaches there are different roles for men and women in a marriage context and in a church leadership context. Only in those contexts, I think it is. But there are different roles. So like Ephesians 5 would talk about marriage. Paul there is giving instructions to husbands and wives and the different roles that they play in a marriage modeled on the relationship between Christ and the church, all part of telling a greater story, which you've talked about in this series. The same, I think, is indicated about church leadership. Uh, a New Testament letter like 1 Timothy would be particularly key there, but also the example and the teaching throughout the New Testament that actually the ultimate spiritual leadership of the church, the top-level leadership, as it were, of the church is to be men, male elders who father the church. They are father figures in the family of the church. And these different roles are put there by God, not because of value or worth or ability, We've seen both men and women are creating the image of God. We have inherent worth and dignity, utterly equal to each other. But different roles are put there because God, through these different roles, is telling a story. He's working out a bigger plan. There's beauty and story in what God is doing. 
There's these two things, our external appearance, different roles in church leadership in marriage context. Beyond that, I can't find anything in the Bible which indicates different ways we live as men and women, ways we have to live this out. You'll sometimes find kind of sex-specific instructions, but when you kind of stop and think about those, that just happens to be a particular application of a general principle in that time and place. Maybe there's a reason that to that church, Paul or Peter or someone needed to say something specific to the men, but it's usually a characteristic or something that should be true of all Christians anyway. They're not defining what it means to live as a man or woman. And if that is the case, which I'm convinced it is from the scriptures, that gives us wonderful freedom. There's a couple of small parameters to take hold of, to live out our identities as a man or woman. But beyond that, there's wonderful, wonderful freedom. And this freedom is rooted in Genesis 1.27. That is the key verse. This given identity. If you're a man or woman because God has said you're a man or woman, he's giving you the identity in his body, then how you live, how you act, how you feel doesn't change that, can't challenge that. That gives us freedom. We can embrace the uniqueness of our personality, of our preferences and stuff. It doesn't change the fact that we're a man or woman because God says we are. Knowing who we are in what God says allows us to be how we are. And this is where, for me, I've just found and experienced the Bible's teaching to be so life-giving, so freeing. I shared with you how I was just living with that sense of not making the cut as a real man, so aware of all my differences, disqualifying myself from the men group. But then I realized, no, no, God says I'm a man because he says I'm a man. He's given me that identity in my Bible. It's in, in the Bible and in my body. It's not based on whether I'm like other men. And so therefore, if I know who I am, I'm a man because God says I'm a man. I can be how I am. It doesn't change that. I can embrace my deep love for Downton Abbey and musical theater and my sometimes somewhat flamboyant nature. It doesn't change the fact I'm a man because God says I'm a man. It doesn't matter that I have no interest in the fact that the World Cup has come up. I don't like beer. I hate aggression and lots of typically masculine things. It doesn't change the fact I'm a man because God says I'm a man. I know who I am. Therefore, I can be how I am. It's my experience that loads of us need to hear that and need to actually step into and enjoy the freedom that gives us. And it's worth just noting this very much links to uh, gender stereotypes. You familiar with this idea, the kind of idea of these very fixed, uh, quite simplistic ideas of what men and women are like? And they're the things that make us think, oh, I don't fit in because I should be like that because men are like that or women are like that. And it's easy to hear all this and think, well, gender stereotypes are terrible and must be thrown out and discarded. I think that's kind of how I used to think about it. I think I've come to nuance that. I think gender stereotypes just need to be kept in their place. Gender stereotypes often are describing a statistical majority, what is often true. We stereotype things all the time, and actually it helps us process things in our limited human brains. But actually, if they're not kept in their place, stereotypes become problematic. So two things we need to remember to keep them in their place. One is that stereotypes, they're often true, but they're not always true. They're generalizations, not universals. It might often be true that men often like these things, or women are often like this. Generally true, but not always. And we need to make sure we keep it as generally true and don't imply it's always true. Otherwise, some of us who don't fit those things hear the always true and think, well, it's not true of me, therefore, am I not a man, am I not a woman? You see how the problem kind of emerges. They're often true, not always true. And they're descriptive, not prescriptive. Observations, not guidelines. They're just observing, oh, this is often the way the world is, not this is how men and women must be. 
Again, we need to care for that. If we make them prescriptions, some of us feel we have to kind of squeeze ourselves into a box which is very uncomfortable for us because it's not kind of the natural fit for us. But actually, they're not prescriptions. They're just descriptions. Stereotypes need to be handled carefully. We need to watch our words, watch our jokes. It's often a place that stereotypes come in. In my notes, it says, watch our events. Great to hear you had a women's event, but it's challenging actually. How do we view the sexes when we have sex-specific events? In parenting, I think it's really key, actually. Do our kids grow up thinking they need to be a certain way to be a boy or a girl, or do they realize actually the freedom, no, they're a boy or a girl because God says they are, and that gives them wonderful freedom. We need to make sure we don't ever make stereotypes the basis of being a man or being a woman. And so finally, let's just think about how do we put all this into practice? That's slightly all a bit abstract, doesn't it? Let's go back to those three groups we talked about, actually, the ways this can hit home for us, the ways this can be real life for us, those three groups. What, about, what does all of this say to those who experience that significant level of disconnect between what the body says, what the internal self says? People who might identify as trans might experience gender dysphoria. I think what we've said here provides part of, importantly only part of, a Christian response to this topic, how we think about it, how we understand that experience. Because the fundamental question when someone experiences a disconnect between what their body is saying and what their internal self is saying is, well, which one reveals the true me? When my body and my internal self disagree, which one is correct in a sense? Which one do I embrace and follow as my true identity? I think what we've seen here from the Scriptures is the Scriptures teach us that embracing what our bodies say is the right thing to do and the best thing to do. That's why I think on a Christian ethical understanding, transitioning, moving to live in line of internal gender rather than giving them a biological sex, is neither the right nor the um, most helpful thing to do. Scripture calls us to live out the identity God has given us. There's a, there's a head response here, but that's not the only thing we need to say. That's part of a Christian response. But actually, when we talk about the reality of trans experience, we all have to say other, also have to say other things. We also need to think about our heart response. We need to think about genuine love and welcome to people who might have different experiences from our own. We need to think about how we seek to love people by understanding their experience. Not assuming we know what it means when they say they're trans, that we learn to understand their experience. We hear their story. What's life been like for you? What is it you're experiencing? How has that been for you? Recognizing that for so many people, that has been a deeply painful experience, and a painful part of their life. And therefore, being those who express love and express genuine compassion. And when we're doing that, we're just following the example of Jesus. Read through the Gospels, you find when Jesus encounters suffering, encounters distress, he is moved with compassion. It's like his, uh, his kind of instinctive reaction to distress and suffering is compassion. He's moved deep within himself, we're told in the Scriptures. Well, we want to be like Jesus. We want to be known as the most compassionate people, including to those who are experiencing distress and suffering around a disconnect in their experience of gender. A heart response is really key. And sadly, we as Christians have to put our hands up and say we've not always done that well when it comes to different experiences of gender. But actually, it's vital to engaging well. And then also, I think a final aspect that's also needed, I think we also need a hope response. Because it would be naive to say that, well, once people get the head response thing right, once they understand the, the logic of it and what the Bible says, it'll be fine, all these feelings will go away, all this difficulty will end. That would be very naive, very simplistic to think that that's just not the case. 
it is a case that for some people, gender could, even for life, be an area of difficulty, of disconnect, of distress. Just as all of us, in different ways, would experience different measures of suffering, potentially until the end of our life in this age. That is, the Bible is actually a very normal thing. But wonderfully, what the Bible does is the Bible equips us to handle suffering and to help other people handle suffering. There's very little on kind of why suffering happens. There's lots on here's how we walk through it. Here's how we navigate it. Here's how we persevere. Here's how we love each other in the midst of it. We need to get good at showing a hurting world in lots of ways, including (coughs) on this question, how we actually can bring a hope. We also want to think about those who experience discomfort, those who feel where they don't make the cut, don't make the cut as a real man or woman, who might exclude themselves from that group. What does all we've said do to help people in that experience, my kind of experience? Well, I've kind of actually, of course, already pointed to that. There's wonderful freedom. Wonderful freedom where we can throw off the expectations of our society, throw off the expectations of gender stereotypes, the feeling we need to live up to a certain way of being a man or woman, and realize, no, no, God says I'm a man, or God says I'm a woman, and the body he's given me, now I just get to embrace that and be pretty relaxed about how I am. For so many of us, there's some stepping into to do, it's just stepping into the freedom that that brings. And my encouragement to all of us is actually for us to all step into being confident in the ways we don't match up to gender stereotypes, because that helps other people see it's the same, it's okay for them to be the same. One of the most lovely and meaningful things someone has said to me in recent years is a guy in my church who thanked me for showing his sons a different way of being a man. Now, he said this to me the morning after I'd been in an 18th birthday party with his sons, which kind of made me think, goodness, what was I like at this party? What did they say when they got home? I don't know. But there we go. But it was wonderful. He was saying, actually, your confidence in the fact you're a man, because God says you're a man, and that means you don't have to change how you are, is setting a good example for his sons as they're working out who are they. Actually, if we all live this out, we're all helped by this. We can all lead each other in example. And finally, what about the discipleship questions? How do we honor God and how we live out our identity as a man or woman? I think there are those two parameters I talked about, external appearance, uh, different roles in church leadership, in marriage context. Then there's this wonderful freedom to be how we are. And actually, my little encouragement really is we can so easily get focused up on what it means to be a man or woman, And forget the primary call for us as followers of Jesus is to be like Christ. Often in Christian circles, this question about being a man or woman has been part of something called the biblical manhood and womanhood movement, which you may or may not have heard about. And I think there are lots of problems with that. I think it overread scripture. I think it took gender stereotypes as instructions rather than descriptions. But I also think a big problem with that really was it just made it sound like getting being a man or woman right was more important than being like Christ. And I read the New Testament, and that's just not what I see. The focus of the New Testament is we're to become like Christ. So yes, we want to honor God in living out our identity in those two ways. Yes, we want to honor God by enjoying the freedom that this given identity gives us. But let's never forget the primary call on us if we're a follower of Jesus is to become like Jesus, not to live up to any ideal of a man or a woman. We honor God by embracing what he's given us and living out. The band can come up at this point, please. Let's just think about how do we respond? A lot to take in, I know, a lot to think through. Lots of different ways are for different ones of us. This might be hitting home today and God might be speaking to us. It might be that today for us, the way we need to respond to what we've heard is to recognize and take hold of that truth that it's God who defines who we are. Maybe for you that is in the area of being a man or woman. Maybe you've lived with that sense of not quite making the cut, of feeling you need to act in certain ways, and actually today God is inviting you to take hold of the truth that you are a man or woman because he's given that to you. 
Maybe for you, it's actually rejecting some unhelpful stereotypes. Today, you can choose to step into that and take hold of that truth. For some of us, that would be quite a difficult thing. Maybe particularly if our experience is that experience of disconnect, that would be a very difficult thing, a very painful thing. I don't want to downplay that, belittle that, make it sound like this is easy. For you, actually, response today might be finding someone you know in the church who's a mature Christian you can trust or one of the leaders and sharing a bit of your story, asking them to pray with you, asking you if you can get a coffee, if you can begin to journey this through together. God doesn't expect us to click our fingers and have everything sorted. But it's an invitation today to step into the goodness of what he's got. For some of us, it's recognizing God defines who we are in terms of being a man or woman. For sometimes, it's recognizing God defines who we are actually in broader things. It might be today what God is saying to you is you're not hearing from him who you are. You're allowing other people or other things or what you feel inside to determine who you are. Actually, it's him who determines who you are. For some of us, we need to step into that as our response today. And one other important response actually would be to check our heart attitudes. We all know that this kind of topic, this kind of question is incredibly emotive and volatile in our culture. Across the room, we'll all have been having all sorts of different emotional reactions, even as I've been talking today. But if we're followers of Jesus, we want our heart to be like Jesus. That includes, includes radical love and compassion towards people who may have very different experiences from us, may be living very differently from us. Our response today may actually be, Jesus, come and shape my heart so I have your truth, I have the conviction, but also I have the compassion like you do. Should we stand as we begin to engage with God? And just want to encourage you to open your hearts and ask to God, what is it that he wants you to take hold of today and respond to? Let me pray for us. And the band, I think, are going to lead us in, in worship. And other guys will lead us through as we see what God wants to do with us from there. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the wonderful truth of given identity, that you determine who we are. And that you have given us the identity of being a man or being a woman through the gift of our bodies. Think we don't have to act in a certain way or feeling a certain way. We just receive it from you. And that's wonderful, wonderful freedom. And we pray right now, Lord, would you help us to receive the good gift that you have given us? Help us to receive it, to enjoy the freedom and the goodness that it gives to us and it offers to us. Help us, Lord God, to love well those for whom this is a real life thing, a difficult thing to be those who have conviction of the goodness of what you say, but also have, Lord, deep, deep wells of compassion reflecting your heart for other people. And help us now, Lord, speak to us, speak to each one of us that we might know what does it mean for us to respond to you right now? What does it mean for us to go away from this place taking hold of your truth and honouring you with this topic in this area? Spirit, pray, come and talk and move amongst us, we ask. Amen.